Welcome back to another episode of Not Related. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of the open society. That is a concept that was popularized by Karl Popper. We're going to talk about what exactly that is supposed to mean, if anything. Uh, but most particularly, Karl Popper, who was a philosopher of science writing around the middle of the 20th century, uh, he had a very a, a disciple who has become very famous, and that disciple is George Soros, who, if you don't know, I assume most people know who this guy is nowadays, but he's kind of a comic book supervillain uh, in the eyes of many. Arguably, he sort of is. Um, and we're also going to talk about his interpretation of Par, uh, Karl Popper's open society, uh, the, the kind of political and uh, social ramifications of that. And really, uh, in previous episodes, now Karl Popper has come up in passing in the episode I did uh, on the philosophy of science, and particularly, particularly Feyerabend. Popper's main claim to fame originally is his idea of falsifiability, okay? So we talked about in the early 20th century, there were these logical positivists, these positivists who were defined by many things. They were defined by a disbelief in metaphysics and the idea that we should write off most of human knowledge as being non-scientific. There needs to be very rigid standards for what qualifies for being scientific. And they had the idea that you can develop scientific propositions and verify them. Karl Popper's main contribution, or, well, in his view, he thought of himself as a debunker of positivism. He thought that he really, I guess, kind of put the, the uh, nail in their coffin. He came up with the idea that really a statement in order to be scientific, it's not that you need to be able to verify it but you need to be able to falsify it. There needs to be some situation, there needs to be some conceivable scenario where you can disprove it. And that is the metric of falsifiability. That, that is usually the idea that is most closely associated with Karl Popper. Now, his book, he wrote really a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies, which is more of a social and political book. Uh, it does actually have to do a little bit with this idea of falsifiabilities. Um, I, I will say that this is actually a two-volume book, arguably a three-volume book. I think it's usually published in two volumes, but they're not particularly long. It probably could just be one. Um, volume one is actually his critique of Plato, and volume two is usually his critique of Hegel and Marx. And it's really a critique of Hegel. He has mostly only good things to say about Karl Marx. Um, now, we're going to discuss uh, Popper's book on the open society, uh, but I want to go ahead and get this out in front of everyone. Normally, when I do podcast episodes, okay, when I did episodes on Joseph Schumpeter or Albion Seed or, you know, the bicameral mind theory, I usually like to put pretty much everything in the words of its original speaker or the, the person originally saying that kind of stuff. But I'm just going to be totally frank about Karl Popper. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to withhold my opinions as much about his works. Now, George Soros, I think we can give a good appraisal of. George Soros has, it, you know, again, he, he's a comic supervillain for many people. But uh, there are some really good things that you can say about George Soros, and we'll get to that. But Karl Popper, I'll just say, originally when I read his Open Society, it was around 10 years ago. I think I was starting out graduate school. Um, 
And I read it, and I was a little critical. There, I actually took notes on it. I very rarely take notes on anything, but I actually there's a little page of just things I wanted to remember, um, things I thought were crazy, things I thought that were interesting. Um, but I, I was mostly positive on the book ten years ago. But maybe it's just the age I've put on. Maybe it's I don't know the world knowledge that I have now or something. But reading this book again. Uh, in the past month has been absolutely infuriating. I really do not like it. I, I, I don't want to be negative. I, I think actually in the past couple episodes I've been not given negative reviews, but I've been negative about some books. But I want to say that basically every argument that Karl Popper makes I think is bad. I think that he has really questionable uh, ways of classifying things. I think he misunderstands nearly everything he talks about. And I, I don't, I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, but I do want to be clear, although Popper has had some disciples in George Soros and other people, um, ultimately he has not really been a very influential political thinker whatsoever. And I think that's one of the, re one of the reasons for that is that these books are kind of punching beyond their qualifications. I think Popper talks a lot, talks arrogantly about a lot of things I don't know. Well, when especially when we talk about Plato, we'll understand what I mean by this. But uh, I'm just going to say, all this is to say, I'm going to give an explanation of this book, what I think is good and bad, but it's going to be mostly bad. Okay, I really do not like this book. Um, so what is the open society? Okay, this, this, this book of his is actually a defense of what he calls the open society. Uh, against its enemies. But the weird thing about it is he never actually defines what the open society is. He sort of leaves that to the reader to understand. Now, in general, the open society is liberal democracy, okay, um, in his definition. But th that, again, he does not specifically say what about it he likes and doesn't like. But remember, this book is being written at around the time of the Second World War, and the two volumes of the book, this is actually a little peculiar. I said one is on Plato and one is on Hegel and Marx. Now, the volume on Hegel and Marx, especially Marx, of course, is a critique of his view of the communist worldview. Um, not so much in terms of its core values, but he's highly critical of what he calls historicism. Uh, this is the idea that there are trends to history. Uh, there are... Uh, that, that are kind of can be scientifically studied. Uh, one thing, one good thing that I can say about Popper that I don't like about a, a lot of other liberal Democrats is that he absolutely does not have the idea of Whig history. He doesn't have this idea that history is magic. You know, the reason we have uh, society is the way it is now is because of progress and science and everything is just getting better and that's just some magical historical trend and that's how we know that everything new is good everything bad is old uh, he doesn't have that value system he doesn't believe in this magical uh, direction of society but also he is critical of the Marxist and Hegelian view the, the kind of dialectic view of history he thinks that is on a very shaky foundation and although he finds himself agreeing with Marx on a lot of specific political points or really political goals in terms of what he wants society to look like, um, he's highly critical of this historicist foundation. He thinks it's he actually thinks it's kind of reactionary, right? It, it's kind of a right wing thing, which I also think is uh, kind of silly, but we'll get into that. Either way, volume two 
thus is more or less his critique or his uh, addenda to socialism and communism. Now, volume one is on Plato, and at the time of his writing, again, this is being written during the time of the Second World War, the first volume in his twisted interpretation, his critique of Plato is really a critique of nationalism, national socialism, uh, Nazism, fascism, whatever. In his view, Plato in some way is some, uh, and, and this is where things will gradually begin to break down, but they, they'll go pretty crazy as time goes on. But he really thinks of Plato as being a racialist thinker. That's the words he puts it in. So these two volumes are really critiques of the two major trends that are active at his period, Marxism and fascism. And th that is really his idea. And the idea of the open society is the third pole. It's the, the alternative to the, those two things. So if I, if I use his uh, vision of things to define what an open society is, I, I said it's sort of liberal democracy, but we can get a couple more things out of it. We know that it's not a monarchy. He constantly contrasts the open society with a monarchy. He also constantly cr contrasts it with what he calls tribalism, okay, um, which is usually always used in a very negative sense. He views that as a, a bad thing. But also extremely important for Popper, and this might sound like a bad thing, but in, extremely important for him, is social competition, social striving. That is one of the hallmarks of the open society. This is actually something that uh, he says, he talks about at length. Um, people have to be making individual decisions. They have to be competing with each other. That is one of the most important things of an open society. So you kind of have this idea, of course, it's not just liberal democracy, but there is some kind of maybe free market competition going on. Now, he is not more of like a libertarian like Hayek. Now, if you want to read a book around this period that is a better, well, frankly, I think is better, you can read Hayek. You can read his Road to Serfdom. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with Hayek on 90% of things. Well, more than I agree on Popper on things. I'll just say that comparing Popper to libertarians of that period, Popper is, his his vision of things is a little bit more incoherent. There's no, like he doesn't really take stances on anything. Uh, he kind of, wait, like, I'll just say many things are contradictory. He doesn't have a systematic worldview in the way that someone like Hayek would gradually develop. Not even to say that Hayek might be more agreeable in general. Uh, I'm just saying that Popper, uh, you'll realize this as I continue to explain his ideology, um, there's not much of a systematicity in it, okay? Um, anyway, in fact, I will say that this book is kind of like the horseshoe theory, <laughs> the horseshoe theory uh, incarnate in one book. Uh, because really what he's saying is that all of his opponents, whether they're, uh, you know, German National Socialists, whether they're uh, Bolsheviks, whether, you know, er everyone is sort of abides by the same historicist fallacies. All of them believe in this quote-unquote closed society, which is the alternative to his open society. Um, it's just never really clear what he means by that. I think people reading in our cultural environment will sort of understand, oh, this like means liberal democracy in some general sense, but he doesn't even tie it down to being something, you know, a lot of times people will tie liberal democracy down to something like, oh, it means freedom of expression or freedom of thought or the ability to vote. 
he doesn't even tie it down to things like that. It is really just a general idea that people will be able to compete for social status. You don't have one set one set position in life. Um, now, the real distinction he makes, I, I think the really the one that's most important is that he puts the, the distinction between an open society and a closed society, he puts that in, actually in other terms, okay? He talks about what I guess he calls the organic society, which he thinks of as being something bad or obsolete, with the idea of an abstract society. And an open society is more or less uh, something, you know, an open society is something that is closer to this ideal of being abstract. Now, what exactly does he mean by this? An organic society is kind of the natural situation of mankind, right? You have direct relationships with people you're involved with. Um, a lot of times your ties to people are biological. So it could be a tribe or a race or, you know, something like that. And importantly, people have united interests. That is, he calls it an organic society because it functions sort of like an organism. There is no competition among the different parts of the body. They all work together to do one end. This actually is what he contrasts with the, or well, this is really how he puts Plato's ideal, uh, which he constantly calls totalitarian. Uh, and I think it is fair to say that Plato, I mean, totalitarianism is, I mean, that's a word of the 20th century, but... Uh, Plato's view, Plato has this kind of utopian view of the world, which I don't agree with, and uh, Popper, of course, thinks is totally despicable. Um, but it's I, this idea that a philosopher king should consciously design society, and every person should have a set, situ a set position in life that cannot change, and they have the same, thing, the same role that they're performing in society forever, and their heirs do the same thing. And he thinks of this kind of top-down controlled society as actually being very similar to tribal societies because people don't have social, uh, I guess, competition or really social mobility would be a nicer way to put it. Uh, that isn't how Popper describes it. But, you know, people can't move around in their position at li in life. Instead, they have united interests. They, are, they serve the same place in the same organic society. Now, to be clear, I occasionally use the term organic society, um, you know, maybe not in podcast episodes, but I've used that in other places. And I mean something similar that's often overlapping, but not exactly the same. So I want to be clear about that distinction. When I say organic society, I mean a society that is not governed by, you know, it's not consciously designed. So in my view, Plato's society, which, you know, Plato's vision of the world um, where a philosopher king manages everything and everyone has a set purpose. And this is all a mechanism that has been uh, conceived of and designed by professionals. That is the exact opposite of what I would view as an organic society. But there's a sense in which, in Plato's view, that is an organic society because his view is it is a society that is an organism, right? When I use the term organic, I really mean that to mean it is something that is emerged, you know, maybe you could say emergent society uh, or an unideological society where you don't, you know, have this ideology that you're using to uh, assess whether something is good or bad, okay? Um, anyway, Plato juxtaposes this view of an organic society with, with an abstract society. And what does that mean? He... Uh, 
I don't know. I maybe I should just read this directly from his book. This is actually on page uh, of volume one. This is on page one seventy four. I'll just read this. As a consequence of its loss of organic character, an open society may become, by degrees, what I should like to term an abstract society. It may, to a considerable extent, lose the character of a concrete or real group of men or a system of such real groups. The point uh, which has been rarely understood may be explained by the following exaggeration. We could conceive of a society in which men practically never meet face to face, in which all business is conducted by individuals in isolation who communicate by typed letters or by telegrams and who go about in closed motor cars. Artificial insemination would even uh, allow propagation without a personal element. Such a fictitious society might be called completely abstract or a completely depersonalized society. Now, the interesting point is that our modern society resembles in many of its aspects such a completely abstract society. Although we do not drive alone in closed motor cars, but meet face-to-face -face thousands of men walking past us on the street, the result is very nearly the same as if we did. We do not establish, as a rule, any personal relationship with our fellow pedestrians. Similarly, membership of a trade union may mean no more than possession of a membership card and payment of a contribution to an unknown secretary. There are many people living in a modern society who have no or extremely few intimate personal contacts, who live in anonymity and isolation, and consequently in unhappiness. For although society has become abstract, the biological makeup of man has not changed much. Men have social needs which they cannot satisfy in an abstract society. Of course, our picture is even in this form highly exaggerated. So I, I think any human reading this in 2021, uh, you, you have to realize, well, that's, that was an exaggeration back then. It's not really an exaggeration now. Um, Popper, of course, is saying, you know, just to explain what he means by an abstract society, society he's using this kind of hyperbole um but i think when you look at it now it's like oh actually this has come to be popper's uh vision of the world we have actually moved so close to this i mean it's like we've gotten so close to the sun we've burned our wings and we're falling to the ground because this is exactly we are living the open society to its logical conclusion we have become an abstract society where yes people literally uh, I mean, we don't even go to work. We work from home often. We often see no one we work with. And in fact, if we're in public, we gotta, you got to wear your safety mask so you don't get anyone sick. This is actually the world we live in. Our relationships are being replaced by not just social media, uh, but, you know, OnlyFans and stuff like that. That actually is a real thing that's now happening. Um, now, Popper, just to be clear, this is something he's saying is a good thing. Uh, I don't think he actually thought that things would get as bad as they are now. Um, but Popper is, in essence, saying we need a more abstract society. Now, he does go on to say, well, you know, this is nice because we will at least be able to meet people uh, who we're not biologically related to. And we actually can. We can meet anyone in the world on the Internet. Okay, again, we, got, we have OnlyFans, okay? We have all of that stuff. But I, I just want to say personally... Uh, I don't think that trade is worth it. I would like to talk to the king of liberal democracy, and I would like a refund, okay? I don't like this. Karl Popper, I want my money back, all right? 
But that, that in essence, is his view. And again, this is kind of dated because I don't think he ever thought that it, things could get this bad, but they sort of have. Either way, his, you know, this is his view of uh, an abstract society, and that is the end result of an open society. It's kind of bugmanism. It's kind of uh, all our relationships with people, none of them are based on uh, even familial ties or anything else. We are in a social system striving upwards, kind of in a free market, trying to improve our position, maintain, you know, we don't actually have the kind of continuity that an organic society has anymore. Um, and this, I, I mean, it, it's you probably think I'm being mean to this idea of an open society because I just read you that passage, but that is quite literally the, the closest part in the book where he actually gets to defining what an open society is. And it honestly sounds bleak. Maybe it just honestly sounds bleak because we're on the other side of it. But to be clear, he doesn't mean by open society personal freedom or something like that. Now, he believes personal freedom to make your own responsible decisions. He thinks that's very important, okay? Because he thinks it's very important that people be able to decide, to decide you know, things relevant to their lives. Um, however, he doesn't believe, for example, that a democracy should have you know, total free speech, free expression. He actually goes into this partially uh, in volume two. I didn't, I didn't write down the page number, so I'm not going to read it for you. Um, but, you know, he really says that in a democracy, people shouldn't have the ability to agitate against democracy itself, right? In the same way that in China right now, you can't, uh, I, I don't know, you can't try and overthrow the government or in Russia or in any country in the world, you cannot try and say, I don't like what the government's doing. I want to stop it. You shouldn't be able to do that in democracy either. That is what uh, Popper says. And of course, you know, he, he makes, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really want to get into this, but we sort of have to. Um, you know, he sort of makes this argument, well, democracy is this unique kind of government, right? Because, oh, the public will can be embedded in electoral decisions. You know, we can, we can have reform through democracy. And I'm just wondering, like, who in the world feels like you have any control over your political life in a democracy? Uh, you know, at least other governments are a little honest about this. I think we talked about this. We, we've actually done a couple episodes on democracy. This is not because I particularly like the topic, but uh, when we talked about Joseph Schumpeter's book, um, this is something we touched on. But also in, uh, I, I did a, a a full episode on democracy where we talked about, you know, the myth of the rational voter and all that kind of stuff like that. Um, so I think it's worth talking, you know, refreshing your memory, at least at length, uh, about a couple things about democracy. First, the point that Schumpeter had made, you know, we have this idea, we have this association, which is totally contrafactual, that democracy means personal freedom, okay? Or democracy means respect for minority groups, or democracy even means a comfortable diversity. And none of that is really true. Schumpeter makes this point um, back in co Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, is that when you actually have rule by the people, the first thing the people want to do is to normalize society. They want to kick out uh, minorities. They want to kind of suppress bizarre groups. Uh, he gives the example of witch hunting, which is something that in the Middle Ages was a bottom-up phenomenon. People really wanted to hunt witches. They wanted to get rid of witches that were, and search them out and all this kind of stuff. And the Catholic Church and church authorities tried extremely hard to resist that. They would say, 
witches aren't real. It's not a thing. We're not going to punish them. Eventually, around you know the 1500s, sort of as the Middle Ages were ended, they relented. They allowed some witch trials. They were token things. But this is very much a bottom-up phenomenon. Schumpeter also uses the example of Jews in Europe, where nearly every common person didn't want Jews around. It was only the upper class, it was only the rulers who were like, no, let's allow Jews, let's allow them to stay here. Uh, we can benefit from them, something like that. So that is one fact about democracy. The other, I think, I don't know if I spoke so much about this, but this, is, this should be something that everyone nowadays realizes. Uh, and that is democracy does not put power into the hands of the people. It really divides political power in infinitesimally small units uh, and theoretically gives it to you, but you don't that you are never going to have some marginal decision that you are going to be able to uh, make with that. Um, in essence, in a democracy, the people who run society are the people who control opinion at a mass level. People like the mass media, now we're familiar with the idea of social media companies just controlling democracy and being able to dictate, well, we're going to say that this is true, this is false, you're going to be able to read this, you're not going to be able to read that. And that, in effect, is the ability to decide policy in a democracy. By, I mean, that, and that is not a mistake. That is basically how the system works, right? Because if you have this very diffuse political power, there really is no way for reform unless it is just forced on you by the elites. There is no way for people to say, oh, we are going to organize and uh, we're, we're just all going to pool our votes together. There's no way of doing that unless you just have some alternate way of controlling and, uh, you know, being able to, con well, re really being able to have your own media, in essence. That is something inherent to it. Whereas if you look at something like a monarchy, how do you reform a monarchy? Well, the king will die in 20 years anyway, and you'll be able to reform. Or you can put pressure on an individual. You can put pressure on the bureaucracy itself. You can put pressure on the individual of a king. And that actually is a much easier... I mean, people often forget that like monarchies were the things that reformed uh, up into the point, or even sort of forced to reform in some places to force them into kind of democratic governments. So this idea Popper has that democracy is the best form of, I mean, and at his time, let's remember that democracy is not old. Democracy in most places in Europe is like maybe 100 years old now. When he was writing, it was like maybe 20 years old. And he, of course, had many examples of democracies voting themselves out of existence. Uh, you know, Hitler being elected in Germany is a pretty good example of that, where basically they managed to get uh, a plurality of votes and they formed a government and then, you know, basically they just uh, got rid of the democratic system itself. And I think people need to realize it, it, that's something that happens pretty much whenever, unless there are very tight controls in favor of, uh, you know, liberal democracy in place in terms of how, you know, you have propaganda propagandistic things you know behind it all uh you look at something like the arab spring that's another good example i remember having friends around the time of the arab spring like what is that like 2010 2012 around that period who were like oh this is great we're gonna have democracy all over the arab world and of course what happens well you give these people democracy and what did they vote for they basically vote for governments that are exactly like the ones they had uh, usually more religious. I mean, it used to be they just had strong men. Now they have more 
Islamist strongmen. You look at places like Egypt and stuff like that. It's not always the case. You, I don't know if I'd call them Islamist, but you know, a little more in that direction. Arab National Socialism, which, you, you know, Baathism, which was sort of secular, that sort of died out, but that's partially American foreign policy as well. Anyway, that was a very uh, long speech there. Um, but I do want to, oh, I actually have a lot more I want to talk about Popper, uh, even though usually we're around, uh, around, this is around the time I take a break, but I'm just going to keep talking for a little bit. Now, one of the distinctions that Popper makes kind of as a way to own his opponents is that he often talks about the organic society or a closed society as being something that is based on magic or unreason or just mere tradition, contrasted with the open society where people can, you know, people make their own decisions, they're making their own social strife, um, and that is based on reason, right? So he contrasts constantly magic versus reason. Again, not really defining what he means by that. Um, but I do want to make clear, there's a previous episode of Not Related, what was it, uh, When You're Too Rational to Be Rational, where I talked about uh, what's called ecological rationality. And that's this idea that there are a lot of components of the human brain which seem to be making irrational decisions that are not really actually irrational. They're actually highly abbreviated logical deductions, so to speak. They, you, you often have very many reflexes in your brain um, that can make complex decisions in a very economical way that you don't have to think a lot about. And a lot of your visceral reactions that might seem to you as being emotional are actually very wise when they're used in the proper context. And they usually are. It's only usually when you put them under experimental you know, situations where they start sounding a little loopy. Okay? Now, um, I mentioned that because... Popper, again, he, he's sort of, he's putting reason on a pedestal a lot. He's saying people are making logical decisions about their lives, therefore that's good. Therefore tradition is bad, magic is bad. But the point I would like to make in passing, again, tied into ecological rationality, tied into, you know, Gerd Gigerenzer's book, Rationality for Mortals, and that, that larger uh, theoretical program, I think it's the point that not just on an individual level, but on a societal level, things that seem irrational often are not. <laughs> and I mean, just to give a, a simple example, let's say something like marriage. All right, Marriage is a social norm that's nearly universal. Nearly every human culture has it in some degree. Um, but there are a lot of people in the Enlightenment, and I guess nowadays you have these gender revolutionaries and stuff, that will critique marriage. In fact, you know, originally people would say, look, I mean, look at marriage. Marriage is like this, it's a voluntary constraint you put yourself under, right? You're debilitating your choice to make a free decision. You're pledging some kind of sexual or financial loyalty to one person. You're limiting yourself. That's not very logical, right? Because it's making yourself less free. But marriage is a pretty good example of a social norm that is enforced by uh, you know, traditionally it's enforced by social taboos of adultery and things like that. Um, that actually solves a game theoretic problem, right? So men, of course, are generally worried about the paternity of their children. They would like to be able to sure, be sure that, you know, they actually are fathers of the children they're raising. Or they would at least prefer to raise their own children. And women, on the same hand, would 
sort of like a way to assure that they can have some degree of stability, maybe financial stability, uh, in raising children, which is usually by itself is a massive risk for women. Not so much for men because, you know, they don't come out of, you don't actually know whose or whose, uh, and they don't come out of your body. So marriage, of course, is actually a, a very nice game theoretic solution for both, the, both of these problems. It's a voluntary constraint that people put themselves in that solves these problems in a lot of ways. And the social norms around marriage that enforce it, which have sort of uh, been forcibly waned in the past several decades, but those social norms that enforce marriage are might seem irrational, but they are actually beneficent. They're doing they're they're serving a purpose. And if you remove them, you have the pro basically it's a house of cards that might collapse in unexpected ways. And I, I think there's a deliberate one one episode I, I was sort of planning on doing, maybe I will do. I, I'm not quite sure if it's uh, worth its own episode is on the decline of happiness in Western democracies. This is a pretty well-attested uh, empirical generalization that on nearly every psychological metric in liberal democracies, you have this massive decrease in reported and observed happiness in basically any psychological metric. People who theoretically, we have the most plastic toys, so we should be happy. We are actually generally the most miserable people. Uh, people who are, uh, in the, the same actually applies with sexual libertinism. Uh, if you have people who are are living kind of a, in at least modern societies who are living more sexually licentious lives, uh, that is not that does not actually bode well for their personal happiness, right? So anyway, why I'm saying all this, I'm, this isn't specifically about sex or marriage or anything, but in general. I, I would like to say that Popper dismisses a lot of cultural institutions as being magical or taboo-based or something like that. But the point is, just because the people who are doing them do not understand the deep reason beyond them, doesn't necessarily mean that they should be removed. This is probably the biggest problem with the Enlightenment, just in general. It's based on this idea that, oh, things I don't understand must be bad. We got to get rid of them. We have to replace all the society with kind of, I don't know, uh, th this, this, we're all, I guess, living in an abstract society where people are depersonalized. They don't have a position in life and they're all just making sort of independent decisions, right? Okay, so now uh, there's a lot of other stuff in play in uh, in uh, Popper's book that I have bad things to say about, but I, I want to focus just on one more thing, all right? And that is, in general, his argument against Plato, okay? Now, I'm not a big fan of Plato. Uh, I'm not really interested in his work. And I will say, in this book, Popper tries to really tr trace all of the fallacies, trace all the things that he doesn't like in modern culture, uh, back to Plato. Like everything went wrong because of Plato and all of these other thinkers are tied into Plato and stuff like that. Now, firstly, as a historical note, nowadays we think of Plato as being a pretty influential thinker. But in the, I guess, late antiquity, maybe that's true to some degree. But especially in the, uh, the uh, Middle Ages in Europe, Plato was not important at all. I mean, a lot of people didn't even have access to his works. Aristotle was of course the most important person. Uh, of course, people would people like Aquinas just referred to Aristotle as the philosopher. Everyone knew who that was. 
Uh, he was a very influential person, but pl Platonism in itself is not very important uh, historically, but Popper wants to sort of say it is. Nonetheless, his view is that, and well, Plato's view, um, as portrayed by Popper, and this is a sort of a, a fair um, depiction, Plato, of course, has the idea that the physical reality is a reflection of ideas or ideals, if you want to put it that way. But um, there is a platonic world of ideas out there, and the world that we reserve, uh, uh, perceive is just a pale reflection of what's really going on. And in the context of government, there is an ideal monarchy. There is an ideal government uh, that Plato thinks of as being the original government as well. And as time goes on, there is a tendency to regress. There is a tendency to, I guess, disimprovement, to, for things to get worse, right? And this is partially Plato's historicism. Uh, this is, again, something that Popper really doesn't like. But Plato has this idea that all other forms of government are derivative on this idea. And they are getting worse and worse and worse until you get to things that are chaotic like democracy where there is no no control over society whatsoever and it's all kind of chaos all right um, that that more or less is popper's i guess depiction of uh, plato's view now um there are a couple things to say about democracy uh, about athenian democracy in general now one book that i will go ahead and recommend i don't recommend you read open society and, and its enemies okay uh, you can read the Soros book that I'll talk about later. It might not be that interesting. But here's one book to actually that you actually want to put, might want to put on your list. Maybe not urgently. Uh, it's a little more dry. Um, but the book What's Wrong with Democracy by Lauren Sammons. That's L-O-R-E-N. Uh, not, you know, Lauren as in the girl's name. Um, so Lauren Sammons wrote this book, What's Wrong with Democracy. It actually sounds like a pretty edgy book. Like it's going to be like, I don't know, like Minchus Moldbug level takes, but it's actually not like that. It's really a book on history. Um, and I'll sum it up in a couple points. Again, I think it's worth having as a resource. Uh, I, I actually feel bad for not bringing this up in my other episode in, on democracy, but to sum its ideas up, firstly, there's this notion that's common among Democrats that Athenian democracy, like the democracy made Athens great, right? The fact that people voted in some way, that is a good thing. That, you know, that caused good things to happen in Athens. Firstly, he argues that that's not really the case, right? So Athens got very lucky. They won, uh, you know, some important battles. Uh, and they were in a position, a unique position, to kind of serve as an imperial hub. They, they really ruled over, extracted tribute from other Greek city-states. And this is not necessarily something relevant to them having a democratic government. In fact, you may know the uh, the person who it was the Battle of okay. I don't want to get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was the Battle of Salamis that was run won by Themistocles. Themistocles was a, a demagogue in Athens, um, and the de the word demagogue back in the old days, right, has this idea that a demagogue is someone who convinces the democracy of something. He's not someone who follows the democracy. He's someone who leads it. That's actually what the word demagogue means in Greek. Uh, but, but a demagogue uh, named Themistocles convinced the Athenians to build a massive fleet. And with that fleet, they beat the Persians in the Battle of Salamis. 
and they were able to maneuver themselves as, oh, well, we have this giant fleet. We saved all you other Greek city-states, so we want tribute from all of them. Uh, and they formed this uh, a, a league of different city-states and were basically people paid Athens huge amounts of money. Now, none of that is necessarily tied into Athens being a democracy. Uh, in fact, if Themistocles or someone else had been a, a prominent leader in a non-democratic Athens, it would have been just, it probably would have been easier. And you should know that the democracy, once they were uh, a little jealous of Themistocles, the enemies of Themistocles conspired to actually kick him out of the city. So that's, that actually is what happens to a lot of other figures in Athens, like, I don't know, Thucydides uh, and stuff like that. You know, a lot of figures were were great. A lot of the people we think of as being fantastic figures in classical Greece, pretty much all of them were kicked out by the democracy. That's just how it is, right? Pretty much every great person hated the, the democracy for that reasons, uh, for that reason and other things. Either way, so Salmon's argues, uh, or Salmon, uh, Salmon's argues that uh, Athenian superiority it's not really tied into democracy itself. Uh, secondly, democracy is in Athens is not really, I mean, we nowadays we have this idea of liberal democracy that, you know, there is a, a raceless and religionless and cultureless democracy that is just kind of a bureaucratic decision-making apparatus. Well, he argues that Athenian democracy is really highly nationalistic, highly imperialistic, and in fact, it's really just parasitic on other states. Uh, now, Popper even talks about this, but he more he's more like, oh, well, you know, this is a good thing. Oh, because it's good that demo a democracy should, you know, rule over these other states and it's, do it's doing good things for them and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I think it's a little, there is a big disjunct between Popper's idea of an open society and this, the actual reality that he's allegedly saying is a good thing uh, of this democracy in Athens. And lastly, Salmons also makes a point that, you know, we use the term democracy for Athens and we use the term democracy for modern liberal democracies, but they're really just not the same in how they make decisions. I mean, we, we elect members of parliament or members of Congress and presidents and, you know, or the electoral college. We elect people like that, but that's not really anything. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Athenian democracy, which had a lot of elements of randomness. It had, uh, in some degrees, it was more direct. In some degrees, it was less direct. And it actually just had a much more complex system. Um, if I can go into another spiel here, this, uh, I meant to write a blog post about this a while ago. But one important thing, if you want to have an actually functioning democracy that's not going to be manipulated by, you know, privileged parties and uh, you know, wealthy donors and stuff like that. You don't want to make a transparent democracy. You want to make an absolutely opaque democracy, okay? One of the best examples of this is uh, Venice, okay? Now, Venice, of course, people usually don't call a democracy, but in electing the doge, so the doge, of course, is kind of the ruler for life. He's a, an elected ruler, um, but they would elect this guy, but it wouldn't just be like everyone in town would put in their ballots. What they would do is they would, I, I should pull it up. You should look it up yourself, but it's so complicated. I'll just give you the idea. Basically what would happen, you know, let's say they'd have a group of 40 people. Those 40 people would elect an electoral college of 11. And then that electoral college of 11 would, uh, you know, pick by lot uh, a college of 100. 
and that college would pick by lot and elect, you know, 20 people. And then that 20 people would elect, you know, they go through all of these constant iterations of picking either by randomness or, you know, picking uh, by vote new uh, groups of people to elect a next group. And eventually at the very end, after like 12 different, or probably more than that, iterations, they would decide who the doge would be, okay? That's actually how, th that, if you want a long-standing republic or at least electoral system, that's actually how you want it. You want it to be very confusing because you don't want people to be able to just pay someone off or manipulate or to brainwash someone or to put them in a position where they have to do what you say. You want to have an extremely confusing and random system that picks someone. That's actually what you want, okay? So that, I don't know, that, that's a real hot take for you, okay? Um, either way, so those are a couple things you can say about the Athenian democracy. Um, additionally, the annoying thing about Popper in this whole book I, that I just have to keep going on and on about um, is that Popper basically tries to rewrite all of Athenian history. And I guess, I, I don't know, pretty much everything. Um, he wants to argue that Socrates was like, Socrates, who, you know, for people who have even a Wikipedia knowledge base of classical Greece, you will know that Socrates was one of the many, or the most prominent, who was killed by the democracy. Um, Socrates, of course, lived through the pre-democratic Athens. He lived through the, uh, w when Sparta came through and installed, basically, dictators in Athens. He lived through that period as a teacher and kind of as a rabble-rouser. But once the democracy came to be, in the way that we understand it in classical Greece, um, Socrates was basically promptly put to death. Now, Popper doesn't like that. Well, okay, Popper tries to say that Socrates was secretly, even though he was, was critiquing the democracy, Socrates was actually secretly a Democrat. And the reason we don't think he is is because Plato just like Socrates... Socrates, of course, didn't write anything. Plato wrote everything, you know, nearly everything that we know about Socrates we know from Plato. Uh, but Popper tries to say that Plato uh, basically rewrote Socrates as being anti-democratic when he was out, literally killed by the democracy, right? Um, th this is one of those things, and again, the whole notion that democracies are pro-free speech or pro-any of this kind of crap, it's just, that's just not true. Like, I don't, I don't know. Does anyone... Well, anyway, I'm not going to go into that too much. I've sort of ranted enough about this kind of stuff. Um, the only thing I'll add at the very end is something I mentioned in passing, uh, and then we'll, I'll close Open Society and Cinemies, and we can talk about George Soros, um, is that Plato has this kind of, draws this really forced connection between fascism, racial fascism, and Plato, which is so tenuous uh, for many reasons the, the, I think it's really laughable. It's just like Popper is the kind of guy, this is his biggest flaw through everything he writes. Popper's biggest flaw is he takes the political distinctions of his day and he wants to see them in the past. That is the biggest problem. He wants to say, I mean, it's sort of like, like Marxists who look back at like Imperial Rome and say that like, you know, the, the optimate, uh, the, you know, the civil war in the Roman Repu at the end of the Roman Republic is like based in like Marxist history, uh, you know, 
uh, you can put that in Marxist terms or something like that. It's just so absurd. I think it's really nutty when people do that kind of stuff because it's you explaining to people in the past who have no idea what you're talking about that, oh, you're really fighting about this stupid idea that no one has had uh, until very recently. Popper, that is his Achilles heel, basically, because he is constantly saying that this political dispute or that is exactly the same over millennia. And the most absurd thing to me is he tries to tie in this platonic vision of an organic society in his view. Again, I don't call it organic society. But this idea that, oh, well, workers should always be workers and rulers should always be rulers. He says that because there's a biological component to that, there must that it must be similar to the racialism that he's familiar with at his time period, uh, and I just think that's that's so forced. I don't think any racialist thinker at that period would find any commonalities with Plato whatsoever, especially especially with Plato's absurd, larpy, totalitarian view that you know an elite should run society. That is so contrary um, to you know these people, they're thinking, you know what I mean? I just have to think it's nutty. So really, Popper, if you just read the book as someone who doesn't know that much about intellectual history or something, uh, as I think I was around 10 years ago, I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting book. But now, I guess knowing more about a lot of things, I'm just like, this is freaking ridiculous. And he also, before I go into the break, he also makes a bunch of just really weird statements about Christianity now, he's not a Christian, but it seems to me that basically all of his exposure to Christianity is some kind of, like, extreme liberal Protestants. Like, he, the, like Christianity is just kind of—I'm not even going to—I uh, keep saying I'm going to stop, but I can't stop ranting about this stupid book. Um, he even ties in, like, the, the rise of Christianity— uh, you know, you probably know there was a Roman emperor called, uh, you know, usually referred to as Julian the Apostate, who reversed the conversion to Christianity. And Popper, again, is trying to tie all of this in his open society, closed society distinction, blah, 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 historicism, blah, blah, blah. I'm done with this book. Okay, it's over. I actually have a lot more other notes of things I want to complain about this, but it's over. I'm going into the break. We're going to read donations and comments. If you want to go ahead and leave a comment about this, go to donate.notrelated.xyz. You can put in a monthly pledge. Uh, I'm going to read those I've got from the past month or so. It's been right around a month since I've done an episode. And then we will talk about George Soros and his his book, which I think is a lot better. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right, we're back. Time to read some donations and pledges and stuff. Um, so $10 from Yaws Dash. Uh, he says, thanks a lot for the content, Luke. Really enjoying these new episodes. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Rupert Sheldrake? His ideas are really controversial in mainstream sciences terms and are interesting, particularly in the ramifications reading, uh, regarding the evolution of life. The fringeness of his ideas might resonate with some of the points discussed in the Feyerabend episode. I'm familiar with Sheldrake. I am not familiar enough with his works to know how real they are. I think it would be a good example. For those people who don't know, Sheldrake, I want to say, like, uh, he, he, I don't want to say it's like tele, 
telepathic abilities or something like that. But a lot of the stuff he, he goes into are sort of these things we might think of as being a little paranormal. Um, and I can't give a, a full rendition of what he thinks and stuff like that. Um, either way, I don't know enough about him to say whether I think the phenomena are true or not. I just haven't bothered looking into it. But yeah, there's definitely a tendency. Let's say, let's suppose they are true, just for hypothetical, uh, I don't know, for sake of argument. Um, or like there's some aspect of them that's kind of true. I think there is this tendency to look at things that we, we don't have a mechanism for understanding. Let's say things that would be called paranormal. Um, there is a tendency, a reaction to just say, well, materialism can't explain those things. Therefore, they can't happen, right? So even if we have data, even if we have, you know, by conventional scientific standards, some statistically significant quote unquote results, we have to ignore those anyway because we don't know how they work. Uh, there is definitely a tendency to do that kind of stuff when really we shouldn't, okay? We shouldn't because there are also a lot of phenomena that we're just used to nowadays that uh, are, are paranormal. One obvious example is, of course, gravity. Uh, Noam Chomsky actually has this talk. Noam Chomsky's old enough that like every academic talk he gives is basically the same thing. But I will repeat this little point he makes, which is actually a good point. That, you know, in the Enlightenment, people wanted to have this idea of a materialistic, mechanistic universe where everything is just atoms bumping up next to each other. Then this Newton guy comes around and creates this theory of gravity, which so elegantly describes so much about not just stuff falling on Earth, but how planets and stars and stuff move. But the problem with gravity is that it's paranormal. We don't actually understand the mechanism behind it. All we can say is gravity is a force, it's happening, and it's systematic enough that even if we don't understand was what causes it, we basically just have to say it's there. And in order for any of this paranormal stuff to accept, you know, to, to garner scientific support, the fact is it's going to have to be uniform enough, it's going to have to be systematic enough for people to basically make Newtonian-style generalizations about it. Anyway, Chomsky's point, and I think this is an important point for people to remember, is that gravity is a para, it's a paranormal thing. It refuted the idea of this mechanistic universe that people wanted to believe in the Enlightenment. Now we've just kind of gotten used to it, and we hope we can you know, explain gravity in some way. But it is a pretty nutty, and it's a nutty idea, gravity, when you really think about it. Anyway, uh, John sends in $5.00. Hi from Sweden. Thoroughly enjoy the podcast, especially the longer episodes. Well, you might like this one, but I feel like this one's a little long-winded. <laughs> uh, any, re I, I need to honestly not do uh, this episode was probably a little too political for me. I don't, I don't know. I don't like really doing political stuff. Um, anyway, any reason why you switched to MP3 to AUG? MP3 is practically a free format since the expiration of the patent. Uh, and while inferior technically, it is much more widely supported. Um, I really just want to... AUG is the better protocol. I think it's about time to move over to AUG. Yes, there are some players that don't... Um, or really, I should be using Opus, right? Because that's actually an even better container. Um, but AUG has, I, from what I see, enough support. If you're on Apple, you can get AUG support. You can do it. It saves everyone bandwidth and stuff like that. I So I'm just going to use it. Um, maybe when the third season rolls around, I'll think about either moving to Opus if it is supported enough. It doesn't seem to be supported by a lot of players. 
Uh, or, I mean, if people complain enough, if they're just that, if, if they just can't figure out how to play AUG on their iPhones, if they don't know of uh, an app for that, maybe I'll think about switching back to MP3. But I've already started the season in AUG, and I'm going to continue it. Um, uh, Taharul, I, I don't know how that name divides. Uh, anyway, uh, $5 a month. As someone who works with Linux daily, I appreciate the non-Linux content. Very refreshing and interesting topics. Thank you. Um, Chris uh, donates 10 per, mo uh, per month. No comment. Lane, 10 per month. Uh, Daddy War Crimes donates 5 per month. No question. Just uh, thanks for giving me something worthwhile to listen to. Um, uh, $20 per month. Uh, uh, a month from, uh, I guess we'll call this anonymous. Came for the Linux memes, stayed for the philosophical hot takes. I was wondering if you could discuss your experience going from academia and city life versus rural and more personal freedom. I am a software developer by trade and becoming more jaded by the day by the day with big tech and dreams of a simpler rural life uh, away from the city. Um, that might be worth like a video on YouTube rather than an explanation here, but I will just go ahead and say it's easier than you think. Uh, it, and it will benefit you more than you more than you think. Okay, so go ahead and make the. It, it's not gonna be. There are probably some things in a in the city I maybe miss. I'm trying to think of one. I can't. I the only thing I can think off the top of my head, and I've said this to people, and they think I'm weird. I can't go to a Shakespearean play anywhere around here. That's about it. That's the only thing I really miss. Not even the restaurants. Like, you got to drive further to go to a real nice restaurant, but, like, it's not a big deal. Like, you shouldn't be using that much money on them anyway. Uh, Ethan sends in uh, $10 a month. Hello, Mr. Smith. Will there be any mold buggery on the podcast? Uh, how should Americans cope with living under a totalitarian COVID state, parallel society, communes, or something else? Well, I guess I did mention mold bug in passing, but probably, I don't know, maybe... Again, I just said I don't really want to do political stuff because I think it's 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 too complicated of issue of an issue to explain to people and to over like people have very emotion emotional reactions to a lot of things in politics. Um, so I I think it's more productive to talk about more neutral things, not because I want to touch on less important things, but I I, I just think it's better honestly to avoid things like that. There are plenty of other good things to talk about. Um, how can you cope with living under a totalitarian COVID state? Well, you can be happy you don't live in Australia. Um, parallel society communes or something else. Yeah, those, those are all good. I mean, just move out of the city. Like, there's no, none of this COVID stuff is going on out of the city. Like, don't worry about it. Um, also, I'm still planning on getting that X200 to you just a little later than prom. Oh, yeah, this is the guy. Uh, he was making his own ThinkPad store. Uh, where he was Libra booting ThinkPads, and he said he was going to send me one. That was like a month or two ago. He still hasn't sent it, but I assume he's just getting things. For, oh, great. Well, if you're going to send it, I'm I'm glad to have it. Uh, so Joel sends in ten bucks. Uh, even in Monero, actually. Even though I've been watching you for some time, I've already um, some time already. I've never took a look at not related. Uh, something I made up in the last week when I binge listened to all the episodes of Not Related and continued with the latest episodes. Um, when listening to some older episodes, I found out that it is your birthday week, which we both share. And with the latest influx of money through monetary presents from my uh, friends and family, I decided to invest a portion into this podcast. Well, thank you. Yes, actually my birthday, now it's been a little bit of time, but yes, my birthday was in the previous uh, month. I think uh, on some earlier episode, I was like, hey, it's my birthday, send me a birthday donation. Maybe I'm not as greedy now, but 
you can still go to donate.notrelated.xyz if you really want to support the podcast. Anyway, if uh, I may ask, this is me reading him, uh, if I may ask a favor, I would like you to, uh, if you would tell us your opinion on the various topics you introduce to us in your podcast. This because we only have the opinion of the author. As you have stated in the last episode, the author's opinion is not necessarily yours. Well, I've definitely given your opinion, or my opinion on uh, Karl Popper, which I don't like. But in general, I will just say it's probably better for me to not opine on most of the things I talk about. Um, you know, again, things like the bicameral mind, things about, uh, you know, Albion seed and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's not really relevant what I think. And I think also my interpretation of things can change over time, even subtly. I might look back at what I'm saying in these podcasts and think they're, you know, silly if I'm just talking about what I think. Now, in the case of Popper, I, I will say since I have been familiar with this work for a while and just rereading it, I was infuriated, not infuriated, but I was pretty annoyed, pretty peeved by every turn of phrase because I thought they were all deceptive and, and just misunderstanding and stuff like that. Uh, I did not withhold my opinion here, but I don't want to make that a, a, I don't know, a pattern in the future. Anyway, I hope you have a great birthday week. This is me reading. And have a good time reading and creating these episodes. Thank you, Joel. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. DeStefano uh, donates five per month. Hey, Luke, I recently listened to your episode on Roll's new chronology, and it reminded me of a fascinating article I read a while back about the Mosaic Authorship of Genesis. Have you ever read Michael J. Gladeau's theory? Link below. And if so, what are your thoughts? Uh, I am not familiar with this. I can't I can't really say much about it. The idea that Moses actually did write the books of Moses. Um, maybe I'll, I will look up. I will look this up, but I'm not quite sure about it. Uh, James sends in 20 bucks. Um, Koineb uh, sends in 20 per month. Tell your children... Tell your children not to do what I have done. Spend their lives in sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Okay, I'll tell them that. Hearst, <laughs> um, uh, I see, I read all these like email addresses and I'm not really sure how they want them to be names. Anyway, someone donates $10 per month. Not related is great. Donating monthly uh, to keep you making the episodes. Question, if you could recommend only one book besides the Bible for people to read, what would it be? Uh... <laughs> I, you know, I'm not really, this might sound weird, I'm not really big on book reading. I can't think of a single book. There have been books in my life that I recommend to people, but again, it's one of those things I change my opinion about. Like a couple of years ago, I was recommending everyone to read uh, Taleb's Anti-Fragile. Or like 10 years ago, I was telling everyone to read Steven Pinker's Blank Slate. Now, I do think that those books are good, but I will say their, their authors have revealed themselves to be pretty cringe. Um, but the books are, are good. Um, but I can't think of one book right now that I'd be like, oh, everyone has to read this. Uh, I'm really not that much of a book person. I know a lot of these episodes have to do with, uh, you know, particular books and things like that. But, um, like, I, I think there are better ways of learning things than books. Maybe that's a weird way of saying that. And I'm, I'm not saying, like, passively browsing the internet. I'm just giving you my visceral reacts here. So, um, Toulouse donates five per month. Hey, Luke, I was wondering how you get exposed to all these niche sources. I often find myself contemplating these interesting topics, but getting my hands on less mainstream sources of information seems hard when you don't know where to look or ask from Gilead. Uh, that's a hard thing to say. I think it's just 
Well, firstly, there are places you can't look. Like, you're not going to look at, like, the freaking New York Times review of books or some crap like that. Any normie sources, any, like, uh, anything supported by, like, mainstream media sources, you're not going to find anything interesting there except for, like, big text books written for people who think they're a lot smarter than they actually are. Um, I mean, let's say Hamlet's Mill in the past episode. I found Hamlet's Mill, weirdly enough, from a footnote in Fierabans Against Method. He actually makes a footnote about that. That's where I found Hamlet's Mill and got involved into all that kind of stuff. Where did I find Fierabans Against Method? I'm not quite sure. I actually might have been, it may have been after I read Popper those 10 years ago, and I was interested in philosophy of science. Popper is more of a mainstream person. Like, you will see, um, that's probably one of the reasons he's freaking dumb because I don't, I don't know anyway but like you'll you will see Fayeraban mentioned as like the ooh he's the weird guy like in the philosophy of science and I think I found I ended up looking into him I, I'm not quite sure like everything it's it's a different I, I could probably go in a, a standalone episode just talking about where I found out about all this kind of stuff maybe at the end of the season I will do something like that kind of a review of episodes but you know there's a lot to talk about I, I can't give you one single thing to do um, victory, you donates $10 a month is taxation theft. Well, you know, I guess it is. Um, and it looks like, oh, there are some other donations down here. Let me read those. Um, Levy, Levi, I don't know how it is. Uh, just donates 30 for month. Absolutely love the podcast. Thank, thank you for reviving it. I think you keep the episodes. I think you keep the episodes long as it's what the podcast listeners expect. You should also keep making short videos for PeerTube and YouTube so they can act as a gateway drug. I tried adding a monthly donation earlier and the spinner kept on rolling, so I don't know if it went through. Uh, if it did, then you could kindly remove that one and leave this one in, thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know, um, I don't see any extra donation, but yeah, the system should be working. Let me actually talk about the website now. If you go to notrelated.xyz, it's always had just a list of the episodes and stuff. Now I have added in, it's actually based on a GNU rec file. So this might be something to do a technology video on. Um, but it now generates the site and it will have time codes and it will also have bibliographies that will be in drop down menus that you can just click on. So if you want other sources, if you want to see the, you know, other stuff like that, you can just go to notrelated.xyz and of course donations at donate.notrelated.xyz. All right. Uh, Jacob sends in $5 a month. Any thoughts, thoughts on Francis Parker Yockey? If no thoughts, then any thoughts on the traditional school? Um, uh, that name uh, is not familiar to me. I may have heard it. I can't think off the top of my head if I know him. Um, traditional school, this is capital T traditionalism. Uh, I, I have kind of mixed feelings on them. I think they... Uh, I feel like I've talked about this in like another... Probably live streams, people ask me about this a lot. Uh, the traditionalist school, I think they try to systematize too much what they think of as being traditionalism. In general, you know, they have this idea that modernity is bad and we have to, like really there are two poles to all human societies. There are modern societies and traditional societies. And that's not temporal, that's more like in terms of their, are you like bugmanish or are you more organic? Or really sort of like Popper's, you know, organic society and abstract society where you know, modern societies are abstract, organic societies, they're traditionalist. And um, so I think traditionalism, I think it, it kind of ignores a lot of the details. I think human societies are a lot more complex than that. 
and especially people like Evola and you know a lot of these people will may try to paint everything with the same brush which I think is very inaccurate uh, I don't think that it is, I, I'm not saying they're not worth reading but like I wouldn't take them too seriously I'll just say that um, anyway uh, $20 from Wilkins love the content you're hitting all the major soft spots super r slash wait okay he talks about a reddit post i'm just gonna ignore that the, you you shouldn't be admitting to people you're using reddit okay just ignore that uh anyway he says love it all and hope for more keep crushing it all right um sean sends in five dollars per month no uh comment and nick sends in ten dollars per month he just says thank you luke uh i forget how much money we are at per month probably just a couple hundred bucks I think I have the ticker set. It's set like a thousand as a goal, but anyway, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. Again, donate.notrelated.xyz if you have a comment. Uh, anyway, let's get back into the podcast. Oh, one more thing. People sent me this. I think this is worth talking about. Just mentioning it in passing. Uh, two episodes ago, we did David Roll's revised chronology, uh, which actually takes a lot of Greek mythology and actually a lot of the stories in the Bible and says that they are plausibly historical, right? So that in mind, uh, just a couple days after I did that episode, a an article comes out, actually in Nature, and it's entitled, A Tunguska-sized airburst destroyed Tal Ilhaman, a Middle Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea, right? So this, if you don't know what a Tunguska-sized airburst is, uh, the Tungus Tunguska event is a famous event, you know, around a maybe a hundred years ago where this giant comet asteroid, I forget what it is, some kind of celestial thing, uh, almost hit the earth. It actually exploded over the air in this place called Tunguska, knocked down miles and miles of trees, burned and singed everything. Uh, I think it may have killed a couple people, but luckily it wasn't by a city. So, you know, it wasn't a very significant event. Um, but it was basically this entire region being destroyed by a fiery comet. Right, and everything was burned to a crisp. And trees were knocked down. Anyway, uh, in things in the Bible actually being based in history, uh, very interesting. You know, of course, we all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by God for their wicked and abominable sins, and it ends up. Oh well, here we've actually found this evidence of these cities in the middle of Middle Bronze Age being destroyed by a you know, fire from heaven, basically. So a couple people emailed me that like, oh, this is kind of funny. This is interesting. Anyway, so I'll just put that out there. Just again, it's in, it's in nature. It's bunch at all. Of course, like any other good scientific article has a million uh, uh, authors, but you can look that up just, you know, if you're interested. Now that does it for Popper. We're all done with him. Um, but Popper had a student, a very important student, very influential student, very young at the time, of course, the young George Soros. That is a name that people are very familiar with nowadays. In fact, you must be living under a rock if you don't know who George Soros is. Uh, for your good old boomer conservative, George Soros is basically a comic book villain. In fact, a lot of the things, you know, he is very much, he's one of these people who's highly influential on political culture uh, because he is a fabulously rich person, one of the richest people in the world. And he has thrown his money all over the place, particularly in his Open Society Foundation. Um, now, the Open Society Foundation is actually named after Popper's idea of the Open Society. 
Um, and Soros, of course, was very influenced by Popper's ideas. But I think in the same way that I look at Popper's writings as being kind of primitive and maybe he missed this or that and maybe he, maybe the, his understanding of some things were kind of questionable, Soros, in the same way, although he, I, I guess, sort of advocates the general ideas of an open society, uh, he will admit in many ways he is not so much of a Popperian. He doesn't really he, – he adds in a bunch of addenda to his support of an open society. But it's worth talking about Soros. I mean, to give you a bio, um, biography of him, him he, is, he came from a Jewish family uh, living in Hungary, or Hungary. That's usually what it is, Hungary. Um, his father was actually a, a Bolshevik revolutionary um, in, the Soviet, you know, in, the, in Russia and helped make it the Soviet Union. Uh, and, of course, Soros actually lived in Hungary during the uh, German occupation, uh, which, of course, was not very – I don't know if you guys know this, but they weren't particularly friendly to Jews, especially Bolshevik Jews. <laughs> um, either way, Soros actually worked for the German government. Uh, this, is, this is, I don't know, something that I guess his critics will – oh, boo, he's actually like a Nazi, man. Or, that's not really the voice they make. I, I don't have a good boomer impersonation, but um, – Either way, Soros worked for the German government, kind of, you know, subverting things and, you know, helping people escape, uh, you know, other Jews and stuff like that. Um, and then after the war, he went off to the London School of Economics, and I, I'm pretty sure he, he met Popper there. Either way, he was highly influenced by his, uh, uh, his views and stuff like that. But Soros, of course, the reason he's famous is because he, got, he became incredibly rich uh, as an investor, as a trader. Um, he became especially even richer uh, during 19, in 1992. There was actually a, a massive short on. He put a massive short on the pound, the Great Britain pound, uh, and made you know like a billion dollars just in one day, uh, causing this massive uh, currency crisis in Great Britain. It actually made him a very controversial figure. Now this is way before he was, I guess, known politically. I remember even when I was doing my degree in economics. He didn't have the reputation he has now as a political donor. He was pretty – I don't want to say he was politically neutral, but I would just say that, like, you know, you didn't really hear that much about him and stuff like that. The Open Society Foundation was more – like, it didn't really just take the leftist side of everything. You know, it was more just sort of a, a general thing. Uh, either way, nowadays, you know, he's donated to, like, all of these really – these causes that you don't even think are related to, like, the quote-unquote Open Society uh, you know, they put something like 33 million down on Black Lives Matter. I, I don't know how that makes society more open or whatever. Uh, you know, he funded like the the uh, the Kavanaugh protests. And of course, he gives actually millions of dollars to the Wikimedia Foundation as well. So, you know, you better not say anything bad about him on, on Wikipedia or that will be absolutely censored. In fact, the fact that this episode is probably going to go up on YouTube, there's a high chance that this video will be just automatically demonetized because, I don't know, people just assume if you're talking about George Soros, you're talking about his, I don't know, conspiracy, quote-unquote conspiracy theory stuff. But to be honest, most of the conspiracy theories about George Soros, they're just like issues of open information. Uh, he funds all of the he funds a lot of district attorneys a lot of uh you know foundations and all this kind of stuff for left-wing causes that's not really a controversial thing uh, it's one of those things where it's a it's called a conspiracy theory if it's said by someone who is critical of him but it's just called a fact when anyone else says it you know it's one of those weird things 
Uh, either way, so Soros, we're going to talk about what Soros thinks about uh, the world, his view of society, which is actually not as political. It's not really as like leftist political as you might think, all right? In fact, I find it often, bemu I, I'm very bemused by his support by some causes because you read the books that he's put out and he doesn't really seem to have, he doesn't seem to be that political. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. Well, well, we'll just get into it. So he wrote a very famous book called The Alchemy of Finance, a couple, I want to say maybe in the 80s. Um, and this is probably his most famous book. There have been other books that have come out in his name since, but most of them are rebranding The Alchemy of Finance, taking a chapter from it. Uh, actually, in the past year, there was a book co published called In Defense of the Open Society or something like that. Um, and that is not, it is not like him writing a new book. It's really just, it takes some essays that he's uh, written, you know, 20 years ago. And it's taken a couple talks he gave to like New World Order, like Davos and, you know, these big, uh, I guess, rich people, foundations and stuff like that. And it just puts them in the book and stuff like that. So it's not really that interesting. I The first thing I read of his is a book I have, uh, The Crash of 2008 and What It Means by George Soros, The New Paradigm for Financial Markets. That's actually the first book I ever read of his. It was probably back uh, maybe 2010 when I read it. I'm not quite sure exactly. Either way, let's talk about what defines uh, Soros' view of the world. Now, firstly, he continually calls himself a failed philosopher, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek because, oh, I failed as a philosopher. I guess I'll just have to be a rich person. Um, his defining idea is the idea of reflexivity, as he calls it. And his notion, you know, Popper and a lot of other uh, philosophers of science at the period wanted to put everything in this scientific mold. Popper, of course, had some disagreements with that, but the, the general idea of positivism and kind of scientism is that everything has to have the same methodolo methodology, otherwise it's not real science, right? Um, now, Popper notes that, and this is something very obvious in financial markets, that in human domains, there is an aspect of reflexivity or self-referentialness in any of the models we create of financial markets. Because, you know, let's say you, you tell people that, oh, well, when there is a market top, there are going to be, uh, you know, three shoots upward. It's going to go up, it's going to peak up, and it's going to go down a little, peak up again, a little higher, go down a little, peak up again, even higher. That's going to be the actual high. There are going to be three of those. And then the market's going to crash, right? Just a minor observation, right? Um, now, if you say something like this, if you have this theory that this is how financial markets are going to work, that actually creates the reality of it being true. There's a sense in which the theory that we have about economics define how economics actually is, especially in finance. Because in finance, you are not really dealing with fundamentals, okay? The cryptocurrency would be a very good example of this because people are familiar, people are thinking about it right now. Um, but this idea that it's obviously absurd in cryptocurrency to think that the price of an asset is somehow stored to some fundamental truth, real-world truth about the value proposition of this cryptocurrency. And that's especially the case in cryptocurrency because nearly every single project is incomplete. It's like something, maybe we'll finish this, maybe it'll be valuable later, right? 
That's in most of the cases, that's how it is. But that is really just as true in financial markets as well. A lot of the value of things is not necessarily, I mean, it's really determined by people's expectations, which are not really based on real world factors. Uh, it's based on how they, you know, it is self-fulfilling. There's a sense in which um, TA, all these kind of analyses that people do of financial markets, they're self-fulfilling prophecies. I actually remember when I was doing my degree in economics, uh, there was a lot of, I, I, the, I wasn't really doing finance, but every time I saw people present stuff on finance crap, uh, trying to predict long-term long or especially short-term trends, it really is like Soros calls it. It's really an alchemy. It's really just, um, it sounds like nonsense because a lot of it is this kind of reflexive process, okay? Now, Soros notes this concept of reflexivity. I mean, this is really his top, his, his like uh, core idea that, that defines not just finance, but really his entire view of the world. It actually defines how he looks at democracy. Now, he divides human knowledge into two different categories. And this is what I like about Soros. Like in a t teeny tiny book, he's very clear about what he says compared to the two volume treatise that Popper gave us where he's incoherent in the whole thing. But either way, Soros says, really human, there's two kind of, there are two reasons we want to understand the world. There's the cognitive function. And the cognitive function is us trying to understand how the world is. But there's also the manipulative function. There's our tendency or our desire to change the world, to operate within the world, and to mold it to our own benefit. And these two things, they're inevitable. You're not gonna, you have both of them at the same time. And especially in reflexive domains, well, when you have this manipulative function, um, a domain is going to be more likely to be reflexive, especially in human areas, right? So things like finance, things like sociology, uh, politics, a lot of the times, they are not disciplines that you can dispassionately look back at and describe because your description by itself is, you know, a political description is political in itself, right? It will change people's minds. It will affect people politically. That, that is naturally how things are. This is one thing that Soros thinks is extremely important. And it's something that Popper actually avoids anytime he can. Popper really, this is something repeatedly Popper hates. He hates the idea that ideology should affect the real world. He doesn't like it when a Freudian or a Marxist or any of these people will say, well, the people who disagree with me, they disagree because they have, you know, they, they have some interest that is contrary to reality or contrary to, uh, you know, their material interest is against admitting reality. Popper thinks, oh, that's just avoiding the argument. And, uh, but in reality, there is a sense in which that's true. Now, of course, everyone is affected by it, even Freudians and Marxists, obviously. Um, but Soros just makes this a foundational aspect of his philosophy. People are, anyone in the political domains, in the human domains, uh, is going to use this manipulative function to get what they want. So Popper's problem with the open society, and again, he nominally embraces it. He, of course, named his foundation the Open Society Foundation. But his issue is an open society by itself is ripe for manipulation. It's, it's actually perfect for manipulation. And his example, of course, he, he can't use a left-wing example because that would give the game away. But you see that he has this realization about 
the relationship of reflexivity in an open society actually during the Bush administration. I'm going to read this. This is from page 22 of his book, The Crash of 2008. Then something happened to change my mind. I was trying to answer the question, how could the propaganda techniques described in Orwell's 1984 be so successful in contemporary America? After all, in 1984, Big Brother was watching you. There was a ministry of truth and an apparatus of repression to take care of dissidents. In contemporary America, there is freedom of thought and pluralistic media. Sick. <laughs> um, yet the Bush administration managed to mislead the people by using Orwellian newspeak. Suddenly it dawned on me that the concept of reflexivity can shed new light on the question. Until then, I had taken it for granted that Orwellian newspeak could only prevail in a closed society like Orwell's 1984. In doing so, I was slavishly following Karl Popper's argument in favor of the open society, namely that freedom of thought and expression is liable to lead to a better understanding of reality. His argument hinged on the unspoken assumption that political discourse aims at a better understanding of reality. But the, the concept of reflexivity asserts that there is a such thing as the manipulative function, and political discourse can be successfully used to manipulate uh, reality. Why then should politicians give preference to the cognitive over manipulative function? That is the approximate, uh, yeah, the appropriate, that is appropriate for a social scientist whose aim is acquisition of knowledge, but not for a politician whose primary purpose is to get elected and stay in power. So Soros has this kind of realization. And I, I want to be clear that this is probably not, I'm not going to psychologize, you know, psychoanalyze him too much. But I, I think this is clearly something that clicked in his brain that probably conditioned a lot of his later activism. Because back in the Bush administration uh, and earlier, he was a pretty negligible political force. It was only afterwards, perhaps after he had this realization, that be he became a very influential, very, I don't know, liberal with his money, just throwing money all over the place to all these different foundations and political causes. Um, I think this is partially based on this realization he had. And that is... You can't just sit back, right? If, if you have the, it's not just about understanding the world or hoping some magical trend will move society in the way that you want. It's not just about, and politics, of course, is not just about knowledge. It's not just about informing people. And an open society is easily manipulatable because of this, because you have this manipulative function, because people can uh, use the media, because they can, use public discourse to, uh, you know, endorse non-truths, that means that they can jigger the political outcomes to their own preference. Now, I guess the optimistic thing for Soros is that, well, you can do the same thing, right? I can be involved. I can have, you know, I can give a couple million dollars to Wikipedia, which actually is probably some of the best spent money you can possibly put out there because this is, you know, people want to know what's happening with uh, something they've never heard of. What do they do? They search it in Google that immediately comes uh, up with the Wikipedia page, right? That's a great investment. And that is what Soros has actually begun to do. So he, it's, it's weird almost that he calls his foundation the Open Society Foundation because it's not really that much about open societies per se. It's about uh, participating in that struggle, that kind of propagandistic struggle within an open society, um, using the manipulative function, uh, because of course, if you don't do it, someone else will, your enemies will, and that's not going to be any good for you, right? 
Um, now, this might seem a little dishonest. I, I don't necessarily think it's dishonest for Soros because I think anyone in that position is going to have that reaction. Like, it, it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because obviously, in Soros's view, his enemies, they are going to be using this manipulative function. So he has to as well. And actually, this is part of this mindset you actually see in his, uh, you know, his uh, financial affairs as well. Obviously, I, I think I mentioned in passing that he had a really famous short of the great, you know, the, the pound in Britain, which made him a very controversial figure because he made lots of money off of basically the government and uh, other people. And it caused a, a significant currency crisis that, you know, caused a bunch of bad to people. And of course, he was asked, you know, why did you do that? That's that's sort of a mean thing to, I don't know, take advantage of this situation that's gonna that might cause all this, all these problems for different people. And you know, he more or less replied, and this is kind of a sensible thing to say. Well, I mean, if I didn't do it, someone else would have. I mean, it, it, the opportunity is there. Why aren't you exploiting it? Someone is going to exploit it, so it might as well be me. I might as well get rich off of this flaw in the system. Um, I think there was another thing. I, I want to say maybe he shorted like the ringgit or something. Uh, I, f I forget exactly the, the I don't know, the specifics of that. But Soros, I, I think a lot of financial people are in this position where a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times you're doing something that's a little antisocial. And it's not, I mean, it's not like you are causing the system to create this opportunity, but it's there and someone's going to take advantage of it. And I think, Soros sort of views an open society like that. An open society is a society that is ripe for plundering politically. You can go in and someone is going to be manipulating the media. Someone is going to be lying. So it might as well be you. You might as well go and put out all the the FUD about your enemies and that kind of stuff. Now, I don't, now Soros is not telling people, uh, oh, I'm out there lying or anything like that. Of course, Soros, every, hey, listen, everyone believes they're the good guy. Well, I don't know. Maybe not every, maybe not everyone. But I'm going to go out and assume that Soros, of course, uh, is a true believer in everything he's doing. I think he thinks he's on the side of the angels. Obviously, uh, most people probably do. Uh, it's just that in real life, you have to realize there is part. You have to do the manipulative function. You have to fight for what you're you're doing. And a lot of times, that means fudging. That means fudging the angles and stuff like that. Um, now, I do actually recommend Soros's book. Now, that is the main point of it. The concept of reflexivity and the concept of the manipulative function, the cognitive versus manipulative function. Uh, in a gist, that is Soros's view of the world. But of course, in his books, in the Alchemy of Finance as well, uh, he goes into the ramifications for this um, in, in terms of where do financial collapses come from, where do bubbles come from, all of this kind of stuff. It's, it's very ripe for his interpretation. And remember, very little of his financial analysis is based on fundamentals, quote unquote. He doesn't really think that that's a big issue. Uh, it's more, you know, looking at how other people look at the system, you know, looking at their cognitive function and manipulating that. Looking at, uh, you know, again, with finance, you're not necessarily based in reality. You're, or well, sometimes you are, very rarely. But anyway. So that's Soros. I, I actually recommend uh, people look into that. Don't read Popper's book. I mean, unless you're, you just want to torture yourself. Um, again, I mentioned the book by Lauren Salmon's What's Wrong with Democracy. I do think that that's worth reading. It's a little dry. Um, if you're interested in classical history, classical, um, I guess, politics, 
that might be something worth reading. It, it's really the story of the, the rise and fall of Athens uh, and the Athenian democracy. But I do recommend people look into, George, like, hear George Soros from his own viewpoint. I think it's pretty senseless. I, I will say I think it's a little senseless when people talk about this guy like an evil villain um, and then you don't listen to what he's saying. Because I, I really think that even George Soros, I, you can look at his history and how his ideas have changed and evolved over time. I think there's a chance that he might change his ideas about some things already. You can read his more recent speeches on the open, you know, in defense of the open society, his most recent compilation book. Um, and he actually is even critical of social media companies and stuff like that. Now, it's he's critical of them in the same way that most leftists are, like basically saying, oh, Facebook doesn't censor enough. Uh, but still, he is at least aware that you have these um, large powers that are now, they are manipulating the open society to a very extreme degree. Now, I will just say, um, just, you know, George Soros, if you're listening, or, you know, anyone else who's of his, his viewpoint, I will just say, Popper has created a false dichotomy. It is not open society versus some weird totalitarian state that's either Bolshevik or, or, or Nazi or something like that. That's not a dichotomy that's at all useful. I think a better definition of an organic society is a society that is, like Popper says, based in you know, familial ties and direct relationships and things like that. But when I use the term organic society, I mean it to mean a society whose social norms have arisen over time. They are not the result of planning, utopian planning, or anything like that, or any, you know, minuscule planning, even at a low level. But there is a sense in which human societies have a natural evolution to them, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And you can live in a society that is both open in the sense that people have uh, autonomy, they can make decisions about where they live, but they also don't live in this abstract society where everyone is unrelated to everyone else. Uh, you know, you, you, you live in a pod, you eat bugs, stuff like that. You don't, like, that dichotomy is just not, it, it's fake, okay? The idea of, like, modern bugman society versus totalitarianism. I just want to say, I look at those, those are the same thing to me, okay? Popper's view of an abstract society or the inevitable end of an open society, I think that is a nightmare. It is a nightmare no worse, probably just as bad, if not worse, than Bolshevism or wh whatever uh, caricature of Nazism you want to have. Like, that is just as bad. And I think we can live in a normal society. <laughs> like, I, I am not, I'm not one of these people who's permanently blackpilled about everything, but I do think the big problem is actually... Um, something that Soros talks about, the enlightenment fallacy, the idea that, you know, we have to create a society based on rational principles. I think when you abandon that and actually go back again to the ecological rationality viewpoint of the world, you realize that there are social norms that might arise that sound irrational, that sound bad, but that is the normal environment for humans. And it would be better if we lived in a society governed by uh, taboo and governed by tradition and governed by our direct contact with people rather than living in a society where things are designed by some planner who thinks this is more egalitarian or this is more utopian or anything like that. That's all I have to say about that, okay? I think that all of Soros and Popper's 
views. They're based on just terrible dichotomies. You don't have to live like that. Anyway, that's all I have to say. This episode's far too long. I said that last time, but this time it actually is. Um, I got to go. I'll see you guys next time. Notrelated.xyz. Episodes are there. Donate.notrelated.xyz. Leave a comment or donation. That's it. Uh, Yeah, bye.